On this episode, we're discussing black ownership, black love, and black unity. Let's get into it. Any leadership that teaches you to depend upon another race is a leadership that will enslave you. Any leadership that teaches you to depend upon another race is a leadership that will enslave you. They gave leadership to our poor parents and that leadership made them slaves. Shalom, 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 my brothers and sisters, and welcome to another episode of Jacob Seed Podcast, where the diaspora speaks. The whole purpose of Jacob Seed Podcast is to get encouraging, uplifting, thought-provoking content out to the African-American community who are a part of the Semitic diaspora. Listen, for all y'all who continue to work with your boy, I appreciate y'all. Every share, every like, um, everything, every DM, whatever it may be, that you, any way that you have supported. Uh, Jacob C podcast listen I truly truly appreciate it if you would like to be a part of the show leave your comment leave your questions call the podcast voicemail at 901-374-74 that's 901-374-74 and there you can leave your comment you can leave your question and it will be played on an episode of Jacob C podcast listen y'all this is a um this is a special podcast right here very very special podcast uh because i invited not only my friend uh but my brother uh onto the show his name is bartholomew jones um and we had a phone conversation just about black love black unity black ownership as i said in the intro and don't turn it off don't turn off the podcast because you think you didn't heard it all about black love black unity and black entrepreneurship i promise you this brother is educated this brother is uh uh, man, he, he he's on. If if you thought you heard an educated black brother, uh, like on the Breakfast Club or something, he takes it to a whole nother level. So listen, this is worth your time. I know it's a long podcast, but listen, this is worth every single minute of you listening. So uh, without further ado, I want to waste no more of y'all time. Um, I want to get right into the phone interview. And yes, again, for some god reason, man, y'all pray for me. I messed up my outro again, but y'all know what it is. Keep it ninety eight plus two. Uh, seek the truth, live it out, and inform others. I don't know why I can't get that right when I'm live, but whatever. Let's get right into the phone interview. I appreciate y'all for rocking with me, and I know that this thing is about to bless y'all socks off. But before I get to the interview, let me give you this brother's contact information so you so I make sure you do not miss it. Um, so the website is Coffee Black CX, like Malcolm X. CXFFEEBlack.com. You can find everything you need to know about Coffee Black and the whole company and merch and coffee and all that good stuff there. And you can also follow them on Instagram at the same moniker, Coffee Black. And if you want to follow um, Bartholomew Jones personally on Instagram, you can go to A Bart Jones on Instagram um, and then you can get linked up to everything else that they have to offer. Um, so without further ado, I don't want to waste no more of y'all time. Uh, here go the phone interview. Let's go. So again, uh, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Jacob Seed Podcast. I'm your host, um, Yermi Yahoo, and today we have for the first time a special guest, uh, Mr. Bartholomew Jones. What up, what up, what up? Yes. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Mr. Jones. I may uh, the applause. Yes, sir. I know you are a busy man. You out here killing it, doing everything, man. 
Um, so I do want to respect your time. I definitely want to thank you. Um, and I know my listeners as well on, on their behalf. Thank you for joining Jacob C podcast today. Um, for the ones who do not know who you are, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, um, my name is Bartholomew Jones. I'm an educator, MC, and a coffee nerd. Uh, grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, went to school, like the um, university right outside of Chicago. And uh, yeah, married to my beautiful wife, Renata Henderson, and we got two children with one on the way. Man, that's dope, man. That's dope. So as uh, and, and, and listen, yeah, y'all, he, he's... He's definitely humble. So this this man is is uh, I'll toot his own horn. He is a he is a master educator. All right. Um, he is a dope musician, artist, producer, um, and he is an entrepreneur, um, founder, and uh, creator of Coffee Black and owner as well. Um, so we'll get right into the interview, sir. Because again, I know you don't don't have a lot of time. We want to respect that time. It's a busy man over here doing big things, doing big P yeah. Diddy things. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so first of all, how did you come up with the, I guess, tell us, tell us, first of all, what is coffee black and how did you come up with that concept? So coffee black is a social enterprise. Our whole goal is essentially we want to reclaim the black history of coffee and then use, you know, current African-American culture as kind of a means to reimagine it, specifically thinking about hip hop. Mm -hmm. Um, and so the story kind of goes like this, you know, like, my dad in college, he went to an HBCU here. In college, he went to uh, Kenya, and that was a big part of him kind of figuring out, like, his identity and understanding who he was. And so when he was there, he got introduced to Kenyan tea, uh, and later on in life, got introduced to Kenyan coffee. So my father introduced me to coffee from Kenya when I was, you know, in middle school. But I didn't wow. like it, of course. I was like, that is gross for some minute, right? So the first introduction I ever really had to coffee being from a place was that it was coming from black people. It was from Kenya, but somehow in my mind, the narrative still centered around whiteness, um, gotcha. whether that was going to Starbucks, whether that was, you know, thinking about lattes and kind of even that's, that's an Italian word. Right. So when I was in college, I was drinking lots of coffee, trying to stay up. I, you know, most of us are lactose intolerant, right? So right, like right. all that sugar and cream <laughs> started getting to me staying up late. And I was like, well, let me just start drinking it black. And so that led me on a journey to find, like, the best black coffee I could. Because, you know, I, I had to drink it black. So I was like, well, it might as well taste good. Right. And um, that led me into this world of coffee shops. And I enjoyed it. It was fun. People were nice. But I always felt like, you know, kind of like a welcome guest. You know, nobody was ever mean. But it didn't really feel like the place was for me. I didn't right. see anybody who You didn't have like your own table. And I was curious. Right. Exactly. Bro. So I was like, why, why is that? Like, why, why is that? And so I started doing research. And I found out that, okay, coffee was actually discovered in Africa. It was discovered in Ethiopia by a man by the name of Kaldi, who's from the Oromo ethnic group, who are currently actually in like a, a conflict right now with uh, some of the government um, in Ethiopia. But he's from this ethnic group. They discovered this bean. He was a goat herder. They were like walking around in the, in the mountains of Ethiopia. His goats started eating these cherries and um, they started getting super high. He was like, what's wrong with my animals? So he started looking into what they ate, found out they had eaten fruit from this tree. And he looked at the fruit of that tree and realized, yo, this has medicinal properties, right? Like uh, mm -hmm. I saw a post the other day that said coffee is African medicine. So I was like, okay, cool. Oh, this wow. is a stimulant, antioxidants, blah, 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 blah. And so he was like, oh, okay, cool. I'm going to bring this back to my ethnic group, right? And so it became a staple food of the Oromo people and then got passed to other ethnic groups in Ethiopia. And it became a ritual, right? It became a part of their cuisine. Their culture was to eat this, to imbibe this. They weren't brewing it. 
But long story short, coffee gets taken over through trade across the Red Sea to Yemen. And in Yemen, um, people start brewing it as a drink in order to stay up later to actually pray. So they were like, mm. okay, cool, we want to stay up longer to pray. Um, <laughs> so a lot of them felt like, like this is the gift the gift from God, right? And those people were Muslims. Um, but they were like, yeah, we feel like this is a gift to, from, from Allah to help us stay up and pray. So they were like, oh, man, we love this thing. So then, long story short, people in Europe find out about it, right? And it starts getting sold and traded. Ethiopia and Yemen, Africa essentially has a monopoly on this thing that's becoming popular all over the world. So, you know, you know, the colonizers uh, were not very excited about that, right? Because right. they're like, hey, why do these people have a monopoly on production on this thing that's becoming so popular? So in the midst of people in Europe trying to rush for, you know, different spices, if you're familiar with, like, you know, kind of the, the rush to try to take spices from all these different right. uh, African countries, one of the things they were looking for was also coffee. And so in 1616, um, two Dutch spies allegedly stole coffee seeds from the port of Mocha in Yemen, which is another reason why, you know, a lot of these words that we hear in coffee, like, are actually signs of colonialism. So when wow. we talk about a mocha, right, we talk about a mocha like the drink, that's because that was the port where coffee was selling from. So one of the things or names that became associated with coffee was mocha as it was spread around the world um, because that was the port. That was one of the ports in one of the countries where it was primarily exported. But again, we hear mocha, we don't think African, right? We just right. think uh, I don't know, European drink. But in reality, that's, that should let us know, like, hmm, that's not really a European word. Let me look deeper. But anyway, so they steal it. They try to uh, grow it in the Netherlands. Of course, coffee is a tropical fruit, like we mentioned. So it's not going to grow in the Netherlands. So they fail at that. Um, they end up continuing conquest, trying to find it. They end up in Sri Lanka. They find some abandoned plants, like some abandoned plantations there. So they conquer the people there, take the coffee, go over to uh, the island of Java, which is another word we should all know, wow, right? Yep. And they uh, enslave the people of Java, and they create actually what was called the first coffee plantation, right? They use the word plantation. And so um, wow. there they force the people, the Javanese people there, to grow coffee and to export that as a good around the world, which then begins to replace a lot of the trade, the monopoly that Africa had. And right now we see Yemen is in a humanitarian crisis. Mm -hmm. You know, Ethiopia is at the brink of a civil war. These places, right. if you have this good, coffee has grown to a $200 billion industry, right? It's the second most traded commodity after oil, wow. right? And so if, this, if, you, if you discover this, you would assume that you would be in a position <laughs> to where you would be financially straight. You know right. what I mean? Like the guy who discovered, who created Microsoft or Google or whatever, like, okay, these people are financially decent. But um, because these things were stolen from Africa at the height of their popularity, and then they used slave labor to produce it instead of fairly compensating the Africans who were growing it originally, um, a lot of the wealth that was generated from this never made it back into the hands of the people who discovered it. And so wow. then later on, coffee is taken from those places and is given to the, they give it to the French emperor who then used it to go to Haiti, which was the first place in the Americas where coffee was cultivated. And they do the same thing, right? Enslave the indigenous people. At this time, they bring African slaves because the slave trade is popping at the time. <laughs> so they bring African right. slaves to grow it alongside the indigenous people. And we all know the history of Haiti, right? So um, when they finally got their freedom, Haiti was blackballed. And so at one point, Haiti was producing most of the coffee in the world. But when they gained their freedom, a lot of their exports were kind of blackballed in the market. People wow. wouldn't take it, people wouldn't buy it. Even now, like we're releasing a Haitian coffee in December. And like that coffee is still hella expensive, bro. It's like nine, it's like seven to nine dollars a pound. Whereas like Ethiopian coffee runs me about like three sixty a pound. So wow. it's extremely expensive because of kind of all the, all the things people have to do just Triple to get it out the country. So 
long story short, right, right. Look, long story short, coffee, this same process happens all over the world. It happens in Brazil, it happens in Colombia, it happens in Guatemala, it happens in like all over the world, right? Where they bring in African slaves to grow the grow this cash crop essentially. So we all know about cotton, corn, sugar cane, tobacco, mm -hmm. but along that was also coffee. And so our whole heart was, man, if we produce this thing, like what would it look like for us to re-engage in this economy and reclaim some of not only the pride that we should take in this thing, but also in the like economic gain and the financial wealth that can be generated, the generational wealth that can be generated. So our hope is, you know, kind of hoping that to present coffee to our community is one of the means by which we can generate generational wealth also get some some form of kind of self-imposed reparations right like i believe in reparations but i also right. am not i don't believe in waiting on people to agree with me right, <laughs> so go. it's like there well we just gonna go get it you know what i mean yeah so that's one of the things that's kind of our big heart man you know so we're in our neighborhood we uh, mentor some of the youth uh in our community that's why my wife and i moved into our neighborhood we stay actually super close to y'all so we stay like right. in, the, in the heights kind of north memphis area and mentor kids and kind of teach them barista stuff if they're interested. And then when we do events, we train them or either try to get them hired in other spots um, and try to pass some of this information off to them so they can build jobs and, you know, build some wealth themselves. Absolutely. So, so coffee black is just not, it's just not a business for you and your wife only, but um, it's something where you guys are using as a tool to educate also the black community on uh, business entrepreneurship and uh, hook up some of these young people with some, with some wealth of their own. That's, that's powerful. Super powerful. That's right, bro. That's right. So, so that's right, man. So, so not only are you, you a, um, a business owner, coffee black. So if, if y'all ain't got none, I'll put the link in the, uh, in the podcast description so y'all can buy y'all own, yeah. uh, uh, um, y'all buy your own coffee from this brother. It's a black owned business. Yeah, join our, join our subscription service, fam. You know what I mean? Like, that's the best way. We, we've been credit-free since we started. We started in January. Well, I lost okay. my job, actually, in, in December. We started a school that closed. So, God told me to, like, go all the way into this. So, subscription services are one of the most consistent ways. We don't have any investors. We don't have any, like, no banks, no credit, no loans. It's just God's grace and hustle. You know what I mean? Man, and hustle this brother does, man. And we'll get, we'll get to that, uh, the hustle later on. Uh, but what I'm excited about is like, not only are you just a, a business, you're educating others, uh, but you're not just a business owner. You're a musician as well. Um, and you have found a yeah. unique way. So, so this, this Bartholomew Jones, this brother is very unique. He's very talented. So you, you have found a way in order to entertain and educate all at the same time, which a lot of, I say, um, hip hop artists in these days, they don't, there's a lot of entertainment, but the education <laughs> element has been lost. Uh, in my opinion, since since hip hop mm. in the '90s, so but you found a way to educate yeah. and, on the same time, entertain. So what what made you want to merge your music with your business? Yeah, so man, a, a big part of this right is that the context that I was in as an educator, I taught in the hood for two years, right? The context that we're in is one in which people are experiencing lots of poverty. There's a lot of trauma, right? And so, like, the means that I think, and this has been always true for our people, like, music has been a means of dealing with trauma, passing down history, and, like, reimagining a better future. You know what I mean? Wow. Trying to provide hope for, like, what's going to happen in the future. And I think that those three things have been a part of what was just real in the context I was in. Uh, shout out to Renata Henderson, a co founder of Coffee Black. She just walked up. To me. Uh, but yeah, of how we've been able to 
continually grow and do what we've done. And so when I was a teacher, like hip hop was just it was in the in the DNA of what was happening, right? Like mm-hmm. people were listening to hip hop, people were teaching hip hop. So if I was teaching, I'm like, if I'm gonna have any type of effective teaching or experience, I have to my music has to be contextualized in space, right? Right. Space too. And when I when I graduated from from college, right, I was like a sociology minor. I was like, you know, all into like black empowerment. So I'm like coming not under teaching. You got to understand, you know, the double consciousness that that <laughs> W. E. B. Du Bois speaks of. And I was in North Memphis at the time at New Hope. You know about New Hope. And like, right. dude, those kids, they they, they like, we don't care. We want to turn up. We want to hit the name, whatever they were saying at the time. So I was like, yo, how can I contextualize this information so I don't just sound like an old head? Um, and uh, like hip hop, running a hip hop club was always the most, some of the most effective experiences I had within the culture was like, it contextualized all the information and the, and the transformation we wanted to see. And so I, I took that with me in every school I went to, I started a hip hop club, right? And then I began to look into hip hop pedagogy, right? And some of the skills of like learning how to teach through hip hop and mm-hmm. use those skills and, and, and methodologies to actually pass information. Like we said, at the heart of hip hop actually was, it was part of it was an educational tool. Not all of it, people were still partying, people were still having a good time, but a big part of it was also the knowledge that happened outside of the party, right? And right. So, like all of those things culminated in that's how I began to pass information. And that's how I began to tell the history and teach history to my students. That's how I began to contextualize literature. It's always in the context of hip hop. So when it came to coffee, that information naturally was going to be communicated through the same kind of cultural lens, right? Like it's going to come through the language and contextualization that our people have developed to be able to tell our story, right? And to mm-hmm. reimagine a better story. And so hip hop was just a part of my life. Plus my pops was like a trumpet player, you know, growing up, my mom, my grandmother was a poet, even as she picked cotton, right? She was writing poetry. So wow. like that's just in my blood naturally. And yeah, bro, my grandmother, like she was a dark skinned woman in Alabama and she found that picking cotton was like the only equitable way for her to take care of herself because everything else was kind of image based, right? Like even in the black community, you know, colorism is real. And so not only was she dealing with Jim Crow, but like any little dregs of resources that were left in the community would go immediately to the light skinned women first. And so she found in the cotton field, the only place for her to really uh, have an equitable shot or a fair shot at any type of livelihood was just to work really hard. So she would go into cotton and pick, in the field and pick 400 pounds of cotton a day. Like she was wow. out picking everybody there. She had my mom's like the next day was back out there picking 200 pounds of cotton a day. So like, <laughs> and in the midst of that, like music was how she found some type of connection to God. Like she was a devout woman and like music and poetry was how she found a way to persevere through her struggle and find meaning in her struggle. And so like, that's just in my blood, you know what I mean? So like, it made sense, right? So I started doing this thing called hip hop pedagogy. So when it came to the company, I was like, yo, this is the lens by which we should view this story, right? And so I'm telling the story of what's happening, but I'm kind of telling it over hip hop beats. And as I imagine, what what would a, if hip hop, if coffee was always black, right? Like if it had never been colonized, uh-huh. what would it sound like? What would it look like? I, it ha- I can't imagine that without hip hop being the, the soundtrack for that shop for those people and right actually one of the craziest things is like the more research i do into like practices and cultures and rituals associated with black coffee growing people always sing songs the same way our people sing wow. songs on, on, on the cotton fields like people sing songs like cultural songs and chants and just be bumping bro you know what i mean as they <laughs> pick the cotton i mean pick the coffee as they harvest it as they process it so i'm like this is what it looks like in 2020 for us to take these things to honor them and then to use them to create stories and narratives that we own 
as yeah. opposed to stories and narratives that other people know. So that's kind of the whole joint. Music has been going well, bro. We, we got we dropped the album called Coffee Black in uh, February. It, it made it to streaming in April. We've gotten 200,000 streams off that project. Man. Um, had about 350,000 streams total for just all the music we released this year. So it's been a good year, bro, for music Thanks, and yeah. everything. And I yeah. think, bro, dude, he's too good, man. And so it's like, it's kind of been like, I think it's been the soundtrack for a lot of the stuff that's happening um, and for the movement that's going on with coffee right now, black people in coffee. Cool. So how, how, so as we're talking about business and education, um, we're talking about being in the community, specifically the black community, how important um, is it in your opinion for black people to own their own stuff? Bro, so literally like this, I'm, I'm speaking to a bunch of industry people later on today, and this is exactly what I'm going to tell them, bro. The first thing with coffee is that the conversation has primarily been around, uh, it's been around diversity. And I think when we think about black people in any industry, there are kind of three different pillars, right? Mm -hmm. Like you have diversity, which is black people being employed in white spaces, representation, mm -hmm. right? Then we have ownership, which is black people owning their own spaces. And then thirdly, we have culture, which is not an economic transaction at all, but it's how does this industry or how does this good live within the context of our community? How does it live within our art? How does it live within our family tables? And how does it live within our daily processing of how we deal with pain, right? Like I mentioned my grandmother, right? So mm -hmm. how does it live within how we process our lives, right? So um, and because you're a follower of Yeshua, like we can say like, man, how does it follow within our spiritual lives as well, right? There, right. There's not really a financial, there's not, there's not an economic conversation. That's just a, a human soul conversation, right? So those three pillars are important. And I think that unfortunately, most of the conversation around most black industries, coffee included, the conversation only always stops at diversity, right? right? How do we get more black people in white owned spaces? And I think that's an important conversation, but it's not the only conversation. And, and if I'm being 100% honest, I think if we focus more on the latter two, the, the first one would, would come immediately, right? right <laughs> so right, right. let's think about, let's think about hip hop as an example. Um, hip hop was created first within our culture, right? It was created, it was generated, it, there wasn't any money associated, it was this expression, right? right. Um, and any, it, it follows the tradition of Negro spirituals, of the blues, of soul music, right? And funk music, it's just in our culture. Then people saw, okay, boom, we're, this is growing so much, we need to build industry around what we're doing. So people began to build relationships and specify jobs and owning their own spaces. Once we had the culture and the ownership, diversity was easy, right? right? Because people with other businesses in other communities are gonna say, oh, wow, this is valuable. How can we get that over here, right? right? then it's easy to populate. It's easy to get representation when you own a monopoly over what you're creating, right? But if you lose in some process, which is what happened to coffee in 1616, literally it was a cultural good with the aroma. It moved to uh, more of a, a, a ownership thing as more black communities and countries start to get involved. But when we lost ownership, right, in 1616 with colonialism, uh, all of a sudden, now it becomes a white thing. And then in order to solve this problem, which was really an ownership problem in the beginning, somehow people try to introduce representation as a solution to an ownership problem, to a theft problem. Like the, the way to get more of me, more of my fingers back on my wallet that you stole mm -hmm. is not for me to place a couple fingers on it while it's still in your hand. It's for you to give it back. <laughs> right, right? right. You put it back in my hand and then I'll have all the representation I need if I, I own it. Take right? it back. I don't really yeah, as as one of your that's one of your songs joint, say, bro. we taking it back. That's a, that's a yeah, hot. Bro. That's one of my we favorite joints you got, man. <laughs> hey, I 
appreciate you, man. That's like I'm really like an esoteric type. I don't know if we can say the N word on here, but I'm like an esoteric type dude. You know what I mean? <laughs> so I'm like <laughs> I'm like a like a neo soul type guy generally. Like I'm pretty chill, but I am from Memphis, so I'm like I got to do a couple joints. You right. know where we turn up just a little bit. You know, <laughs> I'm, generally I'm in the coffee shop chilling, but you got to have a couple joints where you turn up. So yeah, man, ownership is important, bro. And I think a lot of the conversations about like, uh, like <laughs> around representation, quote unquote, or diversity, like the reason why these conversations are so stressful is because I think a lot of black people end up in a position where we're just trying to be the best paid slave. You know what I mean? And man. it's like, uh, how well can that really go for you? Right. And a lot of the things that people hate, like microaggressions, right. Or all these different times where people try to describe, the things that they don't like, I think, honestly, these are just symptoms of not owning the space you're in, right? So I talked about the idea of being a welcome guest, which is kind of language that God gave me as we were in, um, as I was in my PWI that I went to, and people were doing racist stuff, of course. It was a Christian school, and people were doing all this racist stuff. And uh, people were like, I don't understand why these things keep happening. I'm like, it's because we don't own anything here. Right. We're, at, we're, we're guests. We're even welcome guests. Like, you want us to be here. But at the end of the day, like, it's traumatizing when I don't ever get to pick any of the food. I'm glad that we're here at the table, right? But I never get a decision as to what we eat. I can't right. take my shoes off. It's time I'm not playing in the background. I'm sleeping on the couch, right? Like, there's not, <laughs> when, when y'all sell the house, right? I don't get a check, right? I just don't have anywhere to go. So I think that what, what is more palatable and honestly what's more just is like, let's each have our own tables and then we can come to a cookout and everybody can bring a little bit of something. That's a beautiful experience. Right. But if I'm at the cookout and I don't own anything, I never have the means to bring anything and I'm just always eating off of your plate, right? Like, Eventually, you're going to get mad and I'm going to get mad, right? So, right, right. <laughs> so, like, it's healthier if we have our own things, right? And I think that that's the issue with um, kind of the diversity of representation conversation is it never moves to ownership. And then we try to mm -hmm. deal with all of the trauma that comes from being perpetually a welcome guest by, like, making white people do more stuff. And I'm like, yes, justice should happen, but also, like, people are always going to do the minimum, right? We know that people all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of Yah. So like people are not going to somehow suddenly turn into like righteous people in the midst of an unrighteous situation. So what are the what are the ways by which we can protect ourselves if we know people are unrighteous, if we know people are wicked? Right. And one of the things that comes to mind is like in the book of Jeremiah, um, we see that there people are told, right, to work for the good of the city, right? right. And that verse is quoted all the time. Yep. But right, but the thing that people miss, right, is they're being told to also build industry. They're being mm -hmm. told, build your own homes, right? Grow your own food, right? Which almost sounds like talking points out of a Dr. Umar speech, right? But it's right. like, these are <laughs> things that I think you can't really work for the good of anywhere if you don't own anything to provide good. Wow. And so what, what, what people are told is like, they're like, yo, you need to not only like work for the good, yes, but like own your own things, which actually provides leverage and provides a positive representation, which can then mediate some of the effects of people's wicked hearts. And they know, okay, if we go attack them. They make all the coffee. I drink coffee every day. So I got to at least act like I got some respect for them, right? Because right. if I don't, then I'm going to lose this good that this community primarily provides. So I think that that first step provides a bit of power or leverage within a work for the good of the city type scenario. So flip to now, right? Like we don't really have any industries that we own. We don't have any industries that we dominate or besides entertainment, right? And even then, we don't even own the entertainment we make. People in these crazy deals, they in these slave deals. So, like, nobody owns their masters. So, like, even in the thing we do produce, we don't really own it, <laughs> right? And so, like, 
our whole business is like, what would it look like for us to take that principle found in Jeremiah 29 and start applying that to different industries so that when we do work or when we do have to come to the table and have a conversation with other communities, we're coming from a position of power, right? And not of just needing to be asking and pleading and protesting for things without any consequences if they don't get delivered on what we're asking for, you know? Absolutely, man. So imagine what it would be huge. like if... Imagine what it would be like if all the black and brown people in the world was like, yo, if we don't, if we don't see some type of justice or consequences, we're just going to stop producing coffee. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like the conversation moves a lot quicker. And Dr. Clyde Anderson talks a lot about this, but I think that that vertical integration and having power first makes a difference before we move into economics. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Or move into politics, excuse me. Yeah. I mean, I say that all the time. Uh, mine's a little more radical. I'm like, man, if, if we're getting sick of getting shot in the street, putting necks on our knees on our necks, like we're a one trillion dollar business here in the United States of America, just just black people alone. Yep. If one day we just said yep. we up and gone, this country would go into a, a hell of an economic downfall. So like we have the power well, well, we just to understand the power that we have. This is what me and my wife are saying, right? So the first piece of property outside of our home that we bought was an abandoned lot next to our house. We want to go home, put an Airbnb in there, and then have space in the back for coffee training in the community. So we purchased the lot. It was super cheap. It was like three racks. So that's what we did with our stimulus check. We, we bought property, uh, which I definitely encourage when they, if they do sit down another stimulus check, if you're in a position, like, don't just blow that. Like, look at property, especially if you live in the hood or if you care mm -hmm. about the hood. Property is really cheap. You know what I mean? You can purchase that and then at least hold on to that till you need it and sell it again. You know what I mean? At, right. the, at the bare minimum. But um, one of the things we say is like, okay, the next step of property I want to purchase is some rural land so that I can kind of develop that. And also like, yo, when COVID stopped, bro, me and you was texting, bro, it was folks was like, are we, is, is, is the army coming? Like, it's folks going to start raiding right. through. Like, it, it was a situation <laughs> where you was like, I was calling my family in Alabama, like, yo, can we come out? Because I'm not trying to be in the city right, right. now. You know what I mean? It kind of reminds you of Revelation. Like, you don't want to be in the city when, when, when Yeshua comes back. Right. <laughs> it's going to be bad. People are going to be eating their babies. It's going to be wild, right. right? So I'm like, yo, I'm not trying to be in. I want to have a space a space to go, right? right? And then even in addition to that, within the United States, this nation is not guaranteed. So my wife and I, we actually just did our DNA test uh, yesterday because my birthday is this week. And so our goal is when we get our results back, I want to purchase land in one of the countries that is coffee-producing that also aligns with my DNA wow. so that I can start actually adding to the economy of a place where I'm from and not just go back, right? Even with the year of the return, I don't know if you've been following that, but right. like there's a bit of controversy because, you know, African-Americans over, we feel kind of entitled to the whole diaspora uh, story, right. right? Like we claim everything. And some, some people are upset about that. Like, yo, how do you claim all the way from Egypt all the way down to South Africa? Like how, how right. is that? But also I think one of, we're in that position because we, a lot of us don't have that information. And I think that, if we look at it, I'm like, yo, what if I was bringing a valuable good to this community and not just showing up being like, hey, teach me, blah, blah, blah. I'm sad because I'm African-American in slavery. Like, what? Right. Hello? It will good. It provides go. more goodwill and gives you. I think it provides more goodwill and more leverage when it comes to cross-cultural conversations and negotiations. Like, we Absolutely. have a whole... You have value that you need, and so it gives you more goodwill when you're talking to me, right? As opposed to me just kind of showing up with my hands open, like help me up, you know? <laughs> right, right. You're, you're it's a give and take. So you're you're providing something, and you're at you're asking for something but at the same time. You're providing something too, which gives you leverage and yeah. I mean, it, so you give you creates, some leverage. Yeah, it creates better relationships as well. 
Um, yep. So, and yep. I, again, I know I don't have a lot of your time, so I'm trying to I'm trying to squeeze in two more questions. Try to. Okay, uh, come on. I'm a, I'm long. I'm uh, I'm long. Uh, <laughs> I'm long with it. So we'll keep yeah, it I short. Think, I think we got that. In, I think we got that in common. But uh, so what? So <laughs> as, as we talk about ownership and we talk about entrepreneurship, especially specifically in the African American community or the Black community, what are the barriers of Black ownership or entrepreneurship that you have experienced? Because I, I will tell you guys, mm-hmm. as my listeners, like. Um, uh, Bartholomew Jones is not, as I tell y'all, don't be lazy Hebrews. Whether in your scholarship or your work, don't do that. He ain't one of them. So this mm-hmm. man literally travels the nation um, and showcasing um, his talent and his business. Um, so, so what are some of yeah, those we barriers that you've seen? Yeah. So what are those barriers yeah, that so you've seen? That's real. That that uh, um, for me, entrepreneurship for a black. I man. Honestly, think, bro. Yeah, I think e-commerce is a game changer. Like, I can do things that my grand... Well, first of all, I want to honor my ancestors. So, like, my grandparents, you know, even in clinging to the faith in Yeshua, even in continuing to, like, work for righteousness, they had certain limitations because of the market that they... We're going to talk business real quick. They had limitations in the market that they had access to because it was limited by location. And when you're segregated, right, even if you have access to all the black people in your community, that community is disempowered. And so, right. therefore, your market is kind of doesn't have as much. Uh, one of my Burundi friends, a guy else, he was just texting me. We're looking at buying some cars from him. And he says, like, money is like blood, right? right. Um, and so you wanted, to, you wanted to circulate. So we're living in kind of, we were in anemic market, right, where there wasn't, there were, blood was circulating, but there wasn't much. Now it's kind of the mm. opposite where it's clotted, right? Like, we live in communities where we have plenty of blood. We got plenty of money in the black community, at least in the African American community, but it never circulates. Right. Right. So I think that leads to death. Now we're in a position, bro, where like we're, we're we have access to e-commerce to the global economy, and so I think that the, a lot of the frustrations that my ancestors experienced trying to do business was even though I honored them, obviously they went through things and persevered through things that I don't believe I could have, and so I right. think that was God's timing and placing them in that place. So I'm not saying this to dishonor them. I'm just saying we have an advantage now. I think that we should use to our leverage, which is the the internet, right? And I see you posting content consistently, bro. Mm-hmm. And I think for a lot of people, dog, it's not they don't they don't understand that we live in a world where you can just say as Master P said, you can sign yourself. Right. You know what I mean? Like I think a lot of a lot of black men specifically, and I think this is kind of controversial, but I feel like, bro, we 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 have to we we censor whiteness too much in our business endeavors. And so we feel like we need some type of cosign from some other community before our business has legitimacy or before our idea has legitimacy. But when we look in, Gen- in Genesis, bro, we know that we're made in the image of Yahweh, right? And so right. that means like we in ourselves have inherent value, right? And so when you think about capitalism, what is capitalism but an exchange of value? And a lot of people Absolutely. feel like, well, I don't really have value. My ideas, don't my God-given ideas, don't really have value until somebody white comes and tells me that it's a good idea or right. that they're going to give me a business loan. Or that, and I'm like, yo, this is not biblical, right? When we look in the scriptures, our, our being, our spirits have value. So, of course, the outworking of these ideas have value. The reason why we're not making money off them is because we haven't learned how to communicate the value, right? right? So, But if you can learn how to communicate your God-given value through different ideas or products we generate, then you can easily generate income because people will say, hey, that has value. I'll exchange it with you. You don't have to. You, you don't live in a world where you need a banker or an investor to come and co-sign you with some capital. Like, you can create value. So one of the biggest things that I feel I feel frustrated with with myself and with others is that it's easy to fall into that habit of waiting or looking or feeling pressured with this imposter syndrome 
before you move or execute on the idea God is giving you. Mm-hmm. And that's that's not righteous, bro. That's wicked. So like I'm like, man, let me move with faith in what God has given me, what He's told me, and what He showed me. And when I think about that, bro, like here's a perfect example, right? I'm in an industry that's dominated, literally started on colonialism and dominated by white people, right? So Euro Eurocentric coffee is is the perspective that dominates. So what that means is there are certain things that are kind of overflows of the Enlightenment, where we whether we talk about like really uh, logical reason based uh, purchases or uh, value propositions within the marketplace, like buy my coffee because it's the best based on this uh, Eurocentric metric and like score method based that was developed by the Belgian people or whatever, right? So like cup of excellence or my my coffee is an eighty nine point five. My coffee is a 92 and you should buy it because of this. Well, I'm saying no, buy this coffee because it has value that has been ignored. It's made, it's created by our creator. It has a value that's been distorted. So your investment back into this not only is an investment into something that inherently has value, not because a white person gives it a random score, right? But because we know it was created by our creator and because these people who created it have inherent value even more so than the product, right? And so all of my branding has to communicate value that's divine versus value that's based on some type of random metric. But that's difficult to maintain because there's pressure. As I look at other businesses, right, they're saying, we have a 92 on, on the coffee scale. We have a 93. <laughs> we have this super rare coffee. That's, and I like I watch that, right, and I see the market reward that type of communication or that type uh-huh. of belief system. But I have to hold to the thing that I believe makes us unique, which is like we really think black products are dope, not just black coffee, but black people, right, right? inherently. We believe they're valuable. And so our communication has to focus on how they're that. But it's put us in a position, bro, where we're actually now what they call like a purple cow, right? If you've read the book like a purple cow, whatever right, it's basically right. saying, if you if you've read that book. So right, it's saying like, look, they're doing something nobody else is doing, which actually gives us an advantage in the market. But what fear will tell me or what white supremacy will tell me is that because you're doing something nobody else is doing, specifically no other white people are doing, you don't have any validity. Right. Mm. You're not legitimate because you're not doing this thing. When in, from a business perspective and from a theological perspective, right, these things actually are what give me more value in the market. Right. Because right. now I'm presenting something that doesn't exist. And that communication to you actually lets people know, wow, I haven't tried this. Let, let me spend money. Like, I'm sorry, bro. There are too many coffee shops and roasters that operate on. We have the best coffee, blah, blah, blah. That's not right. our marketing stance. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's right. not our, well, our, our stance is black is valuable. Black mm. is beautiful. We consider what you think about black, both black coffee and black people. Maybe what you were told about black wasn't really the truth. Let our product, we introduce you to something that is more accurate, right? That's more beautiful. You're missing out if you don't get on this, which is how people feel about hip hop, right? People right. feel like even random little kids in the suburbs are like, yo, I don't even know what they're talking about. I don't get it. It's not for me. But I'm listening to it because there's something here that I haven't heard before. Right. And that's the same approach that we bring into coffee, bro, is we're highlighting the human element, the black story, and um, kind of the reparations and the repairing, right, repairations that needs to happen mm. through coffee. And that's, for me, is, is the biggest obstacle is, like, fighting um, the, the, the temptation to feel like I have to kind of operate under these white-centric standards and put all the latte art pictures up there and make my bag super minimal and super white and like right. brag about all of my coffee scores and all of my coffee accolades and oh look at me I'm able to dis- distill this <laughs> coffee using a refractometer and right. I'm able to blah, blah, blah. you know like all of that bro that's big energy and I have to fight it one of my mentors who's um Latino actually he's like bro 
this is not what makes you all stand out in the market. Like, don't do what all these little hipster other coffee shops are doing. You know what I mean? And that's a big temptation for me because I find myself continually falling into that. So it's like I have to renew my mind to, like, remember what God has called us to do. And that's not to shame anybody else's coffee shop, but it's like we're not called to do that. And I think everyone has something special and unique that they're called to bring. And I think that that challenge, particularly as a black man, is like reminding myself, like, I'm not going to win by being a white man in the black community. You know, and that's kind of one of the allegations that's brought against black men a lot, right, is that we dominate, right, in the same way that we were dominated. Right. And, um, you know, whether it be uh, from, uh, you know, molestations or whether it be from violence or, you know, ultra ultra commercialism and capitalism where, like, it's kind of like just grabbing and greedy and, and only focused on things. We have to, like, unlearn those things. And actually, like from a business perspective, that market just being pure is saturated, bro. Yes. <laughs> it's a saturated market. Like, so what, how we win is by finding things or presentations or value propositions that haven't been articulated yet, but things that people have been waiting on, you know? And I think that the best way to find those things out is just in the scripture, bro. The principles God gives us in the scripture are things that the world needs, but they don't know they have yet. They don't know they need it. Right. So, like, we can use products to articulate these things and it's going to meet a, meet a need, a felt need in a lot of people's spirits and they'll, you know, respond to that with their pocketbook. Man, that's, that's powerful, man. You said a lot there. So I hope, I hope all y'all got that. If y'all didn't rewind it, listen to it again. That's a, that was some powerful stuff there. So do I, do I have time to get you one more question in? Yeah, we got it, bro. All right, My so, call's not till 11, so we got it. Okay. So, so the very last question and I'll let you go. Cause I know you got places to be, but uh, so let's talk about healing for our people. So we talked a lot about ways we can through business, um, through education, mm-hmm. through music. Um, but how important is it? How important is black love and or black unity? And how does that put us back on the path to healing our communities? Man, that's a great question. And I'm going to try to answer this in the last question at the same time. So I, I'll say this, bro. Like my wife, I always say, was my first investment. She was the first person to look at me and that whole principle was saying, right up, man, I made in God's image. I have value that I can communicate to the market and to people's spirits that um, maybe they haven't heard before or they haven't heard in this specific articulation of the image of God that they need. And that I'm not going to really be following God's plan for my life if I do this by just copy and pasting what I've seen presented in both a white dominated society and just in other people, period. Right. So my wife saw me, right? And one of the things that stood out about my wife, bro, was our first date. I intentionally, I was at a point where I had just gotten out of a bad relationship. I was intentionally trying to turn women off and date. I was like, let me let me get all of my flaws, all the things that I perceive to be my flaws, uh-huh. and I'm going to put them on blast in this first date. Because if they don't got time for this, I don't really need to be involved in this person in a relationship with right. someone who wants to change me, right? I want to be in a relationship with someone who values me in spite of my flaws and not values me, um, you know, only if I can change them on a certain deadline, right? Right. So, you know, I did a couple things. First, I, I changed topics a lot, right, when I talk. And that I found that in the past that had annoyed some women, like, because I was, like, <laughs> really spazzy, right? <laughs> and I also found I'm very artistic. I didn't fit in with a lot of the other black men in the community. So I was like, man, I'm not necessarily, I like those things. Like, I like, you know, I grew up listening to 3 Mafia and so on and so forth. But I was also listening to people like The Ambassador. 
I was also right. listening to the jazz music my dad used to play. I was also listening to like rhythm and blues and like a bunch of other weird music, rock music and stuff like that. Right. So I was like, let me let me intentionally articulate some of these things in my day. I, I, I like to get on my phone frequently, right? Because that's where I see a lot of ideas and I like to throw things at people. So all those things I did in my first day and I expected her to be like, oh, and then leave, right? Because I had right. experienced that before and I was like, you know, we met at a show. I was rapping. She thinks I'm this rapper. I'm like, let me go ahead and hit it with the real. We can get this date over with. I had told me, like, I had made a vow, like, I'm not going to date for a year. So I was like, this this can't be good. I'm like three months into this vow, right? So I'm like, it's not going to be good. But we, um, bro, wow. everything I threw at her, she flipped, bro. I'm telling you, I told this woman our first date, bro. Our first day, I said, hey, I'm going to live in the hood. We're probably not going to have a lot of money because I think God wants us to be, wants me to be missionaries. You cool with that? What kind of black woman you know is going to respond right. to that with a yes? <laughs> right? Uh, but I was like, let me just go. I don't got time to be getting distracted on my mission, right. bro. No, but she we, was like, we ain't oh, getting no, no bags. Already, we ain't got no bands. It ain't coming. No, we don't. And actually, bro, <laughs> and the crazy part is we started the business in December, right? The business that my wife invested in, we started in December of last year. From January to September, the Lord has brought us like 125K in gross sales. Wow. And I'm not a businessman. So, like, the Lord actually has provided money. It's like, you know, Solomon didn't ask for riches. He right. asked for wisdom, but then God rewarded that with riches. Right. So, like, I just wanted to be faithful in the hood, right? I just wanted to make disciples who make disciples in the hood. But the Lord has rewarded that mission by financially be giving us the means to do that without having to be dependent on, you know, some white guy's money. Right. Um, and so that's been a, that's been a blessing. So anyway, <laughs> um, my wife was like, oh, yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I'm already doing that. I said, what? She said, yeah, I'm already doing that. Like, that's what my family did growing up. And, like, that's already wow. on my on my agenda. I was like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, where, where did you come from? Right? Like, I randomly got on my phone while she was talking, which in retrospect was rude. But I was, like, trying to kind of, like, you know, I'm trying to just run right. through all the things that I do that I do. Show all the flaws. So I'm going to get on. I'm like, boom, let me, let me hop on my phone real quick. And uh, I want to see if she believed in me. I was trying to see, did you, do you believe in me or have enough trust in me to right. see where I'm going with something before you judge me? And I think that was mm. something I had experienced a lot where people wouldn't give me a chance to really articulate what I, what I thought or, or articulate my idea. They just shot it down as soon as it looked different. So I was like, boom, let me, let me see what happens. So I get on my phone while she's talking, mind you. Uh, and my mm. wife is from North Memphis, so she don't really play like that, right? But right. she was like, she sat there and just like watched what I was doing. And I pulled up a, a, a song by this band named Gunger, which I intentionally didn't pick a hip hop song, but I pulled out a song because we had been talking, we had been emailing, and she said she was into videography. So I was like, uh -huh. what would you do to make a music video to this song right now? And she started, bro, snapping. She was like, "Yo, I mean, I, I see, you see that water dripping down from that, from that, uh, from that gutter right there. I was zooming in super close to it because the song was called Beautiful Things. Like uh -huh. he makes beautiful things out of dust. And then she was like, "You see that person right there experiencing homelessness? I was zooming on their face and then have them dressed into beautiful clothes so that you can show their true dignity." And like she was, I was wow. like, "Bro, I got goosebumps." I was like, "Oh my god." So that's the woman I married. She's the co-founder of Coffee Black. And she's the first investor because she was the first person really in my community to tell me that my ideas could have value as long as I'm holding the God's standards. She was like, yo, you want to follow the Lord and he's giving you this idea? Like, I believe in that mm -hmm. so much so that I'm going to encourage you. I'm not going to critique you, right? I'm going to actually, and if it doesn't work, I'm going to trust you to work on it, to, to talk to God and figure out a different plan, right? right? That was so huge for me, bro. And then that provided healing for me because like, when I tell you about my, my grandmother, you know, she would call her granny, 
right? And her daughter, who's my mother, and then how that affected me, that trauma's passed down, right, that my grandmother experienced. And so, like, this idea of people not valuing you and having to perform to society standards and, like, my, the, the, the European uh, beauty standards that were forced on my grandmother, and she tried to use fashion kind of as a means to mediate that pain, and when she would go to uh, thrift stores and stuff all the time to buy these crazy clothes. Like, so that, that kind of trauma was passed down where I felt like, you know, un unless I do X, Y, and Z, I won't have value. And my wife was a big part of my healing because she was so connected to Yeshua that she could see God's plan for me and she would believe in that. Mm. Counter to the narrative that other people were trying, you know, counter to the sugar and the cream. Right, she was like, right. yo, if this brother really drinks his coffee black and really dives into the notes the creator has given him, he's going to provide something beautiful to the world and help him connect to the creator in a way that they need it. He doesn't need to taste like every other cup. He don't need the, the hazelnut creamer in the he doesn't need that, right? He doesn't have to conform to the palate of the world. He has something unique and specific that he needs to talk to God to figure out. That he needs to, as we said, in the coffee industry, you need to dial it in, right? Right. So, man, that was a big part of my healing, bro. And the Lord had actually equipped me with specific things that she needed for trauma that she was experiencing. And so, like, our relationship, bro, as we focused on God together, really brought healing to each other. Um, and then through that, we have moved into a community. Like, so I say she's our, our first investor because, like, the Christmas of our first marriage, we had experienced uh, of our first marriage, the first Christmas of our marriage, I only got one marriage, but the first Christmas of our marriage, mm -hmm. uh, we experienced uh, a miscarriage. And so we thought we were going to be pregnant. Um, it was about like seven months into our marriage. So we were like three months pregnant and um, we experienced a miscarriage. And my wife responded to that by, to that loss in our, in our marriage by investing and in providing life um, for a dream that I had. And she knew I was into coffee, but if you grew up in the black community, coffee is not something we spend money on. We really don't spend money on stuff unless we think there's a job associated with it. Right. So like the art <laughs> or creativity or non-traditional entrepreneurship, like if you're saying I'm going to sell real estate, people will invest in you. But if you're like, yo, man, I think I want to go sell socks, like right. custom designer socks, like people are like, no, I'm not investing in that silly. So like right. coffee was something I never really felt good spending money on because of the poverty we had grew up in. My wife bought me an espresso machine our first Christmas, bro. Like that blew me away. I was mm. like literally almost in tears because I was like, nobody has ever believed in these things, these crazy things that God be telling me to do. Like nobody ever really believed in me like that. And she did, bro. She put money up. And so for me, that was the first investment into the company. And it really provided healing. So like God has used our love. Now we're not superheroes. You know, like we still sing right. and we still fail each other. But as we pursue Christ, he's equipping us, right? Like she's the representation of the Holy Spirit in my marriage, right? She's the, the helper, right? right? And I'm the representation of Yeshua, right? That I'm supposed to sacrifice myself. So as we continue to follow God and be conforming to his image, we find that we're equipped with things that the other person needs to heal trauma that our parents and grandparents and great-grandparents have experienced and passed down to us. And that then translates into our family, right? And how we That's raise good. our household and how our household represents in the community. So if you look at my bio, I say I'm, I'm the, I'm a household, uh, I'm the head of a household of black love. Mm. And what that means is our household, that's how I primarily identify myself. They're like, how do you identify? I said, I'm the head of my household. Right? So what that means is the love and the healing and the transformation as we do it faithfully in our community, uh, specifically in our home radiates out into our neighborhood. Right? And so right. if our household is not in order, we can't really, and we see that in the New Testament, right? Like that if someone, if someone is an elder and their household is out of order, they lose qualification to be an elder, right? right? 
So like you can't be out here being an elder and your household crazy, your children doing, you know what I mean? Right, so like right. as, as we focus on our household, then it impacts our community, right? So we specifically keep the community where we knew Yeshua had called us to do ministry, to make disciples, to mentor, um, and now to provide business opportunities, right? And as we focus on what God has called us to do in our household, it being and the healing in our household then radiates out into our neighbors, right? Yes. And we're able to actually love our neighbors as ourselves. And then that radiates out to the larger community. And now it's even connecting the world. Like it's, it's touching people in Burundi and Ethiopia and Kenya and Rwanda and Trinidad and Haiti and Brazil. But right. it starts with our home. And if I ever transgress, right, if I ever leave my home and start focusing on what's happening outside of it, to the to the negligence of what's happening in my home, like the the effect starts to dissipate, right? The right. potency goes away because it's not really real. So how that affects us in our literal household, we've been finding healing through these experiences God has given us and through coffee, right? Mm-hmm. And so like now what that means is we're saying, what would it look like for us to give that to our neighborhood? And one of the people in our community is uh, Jared Myers. He's the head of a CDC. The, the Heist Development Corporation, uh, kind of a spin out of the Binghamton Development Corporation. I know gotcha. you're familiar with them. Yep. And so they really said, hey, we love this business. It's a black owned business. Y'all are getting tons of publicity. They've been on Shopify. They've been on Essence in a couple weeks. I'll tell you when we get offline, but we, we're going to be on cable TV. Episodes being done about us on cable TV. Oh, wow. Um, and so, like, it's been tons of press that God has brought. Yahweh's brought that to us, right? So it's like, we want to keep, we could easily move out. We could have, we, we both have two degrees. We could have easily moved into the suburbs, right? right? But our goal was like, we want these resources to be available to our community. So now that we've grown in our, in our household, the, they said, hey, how can we resource this into the actual community? So they have a couple buildings they're refurbishing on National Street, which is about three blocks away from our house. Mm-hmm. And so what they're saying is, yo, what would it look like for your coffee to be here? And I'm very much so anti-coffee shop for a couple reasons, but let's just, because time is short, let's just say overhead is the primary reason, right? Like right. it's a lot of overhead. Our, our business is, is e-commerce overhead is super low. You know, we've been able to generate uh, six figures plus in nine months. And most of that money hasn't gone into overhead. It's just gone into price of goods and gone into labor. So right. that's been a blessing. If we started introducing like light bills and rent and all that stuff, like it would really right. cut into our margins, which are pretty thin considering we don't have investors at the moment. So, um, now we were at, we're actually at a point where we're actually creating a free coffee shop in our community in collaboration with ICDC. Wow. We're gonna we've been training kids in the neighborhood. We're building out coffee spaces. I'm talking to my contacts in the industry now and saying, hey, what can you donate? And even if they don't donate, right, same mindset. If you don't, I think you should, right, because we're in an industry that's good on the stolen good. But if you don't, we will just sell more coffee and buy it ourselves. So we're not right. waiting on people to donate, but we're talking to people and we're buying equipment and then going to place some of the kids we mentor, specifically Omarion, and say, hey, you have barista training, right? You also are in virtual school. You also don't have internet. This space has internet and it's available to other people in the community who need internet. Let people come in here and just make coffee for them. Right. right. Just make coffee for them in this pot that's available. And it's basically a communal living room. So it's sort of like a coffee shop because we're giving premium specialty grade coffee. We have a trained barista there. But essentially, we're taking slices of our capital and investing that and him being able to do that and provide that to the neighborhood without it being a space where we're dependent on capital to be generated. Right. And that's, that's providing healing. Literally yesterday, bro, I was on a live doing it and I ran into one of the most <laughs> I mean, one of the most bad, I'm not going to crazy, but you know, one of the one of the most bad behind students from when I saw that Sherwood, right? 
<laughs> and he was, I was like, do I know you? He was walking down the street with his little homie and his pit bull. And I was on live and I stopped and I was like, yo, man, I think I know you from somewhere. He was like, oh, yeah, I'm T. I used to go to Sherwood. I was a real bad kid, but I've changed my ways. Mm. And I was like, bro, this is Yahweh's timing for us to be in this space on the street where he lives and is walking down to provide job training, to provide mentorship, access to the scriptures Absolutely. in this community and do it in a way where I don't have to be stressed out about, well, how much money did we bring into the shop today? Because all our money is coming from a business that runs online. So right. we're getting our capital online, right? And we have enough sway and leverage in the community to ask people like, hey, would you consider donating to this thing? And we're equipping it out, we're building it out. So I think we're like maybe three months, three to four months from that being operational, but we started to build out uh, two weeks ago um, and just trying to get everything in there and get it going. And you know, you should stop by bro, three cups of coffee, you know what I mean? When we're over there, we don't have operating hours yet, but really excited about it. And I think that healing that, right? My wife and I experienced mm-hmm. is the same the same healing we want to provide in our community, right? Both right. through our through online, but also physically. And so the goal is to see people as they are meant to be and not as they've been damaged by the world wow, and provide yeah. spaces where they can be seen and loved over a cup of black owned, black grown coffee, right? We only sell coffee grown by black people and we, we, we own it here and sell it here. So being able to take that kind of black on black on black product and then right. give it to a black <laughs> community is kind of our kind of our goal here, you know. Absolutely, man. Listen, I want to thank you. Thank you. Thank you for uh, for the time uh, that you have given us. Um, let our people know exactly um, where they can find you, uh, your albums, your your coffee, um, your merch, because the whole the whole point of Jacob C podcast, at least one of the elements is uh, connecting black people with black people, collecting black products with black products. Collect, uh, connecting black stories to somebody else because somebody in Atlanta needs to hear this somebody in Houston somebody in Baltimore DC um, to show that man there is a way without the white dollar to create your own and to have your own so let everybody know where they can find yeah. you and where they can get your stuff at yeah man they can find us at coffeeblack.com that's C-X-X like Malcolm X C-X-F-F-E-E black.com got you you get man. everything you need over there Man, again, thank you again so much for uh, joining Jacob C. Podcast. Um, as always, to my listeners, keep it 98 plus 2. Seek the truth. Um, share, uh, live it out and share it to others. Shalom, y'all.